God pray and ask God's blessing upon our time as we look to his word to encourage us this morning. Our Father, we thank you that um, you have called us here and that you give us this opportunity to hear from you, from your word. One thing that's true of every single person in this room, we don't have it all together. Our lives are a mess, and that's absolutely true. And what we need is to hear from you and your grace and all that you desire to give us through your Son. So this morning we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and as we draw near to you, we pray that, God, you would draw near to us by your Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I come back, it's like uh, I've had to think about, well, what do I want to share with a congregation I love very deeply? It's been uh, two years since our family moved to Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, and uh, it's great to reconnect with you all here this morning. And I could have pulled out an old sermon I preached years ago that you probably must have remembered, but... I, I, that just doesn't do justice. So I wanted to talk to you about something something that to, I want to encourage you with. And I came upon this because I've been thinking about this for a while. And as I read this text, this letter that Paul's written to this church in Philippi, one of the things that strikes you is how much he has this deep confidence in Jesus and even in the midst of the suffering that he is going through, and I'll talk to you about that in a second, he is saying, Jesus is sustaining me. And at the same time, as I read this, I don't know about you, but most of the time when harsh things come along in my life, I, it's very hard to relate to that. It's very hard to feel like that's actually comforting. It almost feels triumphant on Paul's end. And it feels like, man, he's in this other world spiritually that I don't understand, that I don't have access to. And it just feels like really good words, but something that is really far from me. But I think what Paul wants the church to hear in Philippi and also for us today is to understand how this actually works that God himself has provided this deep, comforting, abiding joy. It's available to us. It's something for us. And we need to understand how this can actually manifest in our own lives. Because what's taking place for Paul is, as you might have picked up, he is in prison. Literally, it tells us that he was in chains, and that means that he was chained maybe to a member of the Praetorian Guards 24-7. Guards who would work in shifts and would be chained physically to Paul, some scholars would argue. And that means that someone who's in jail, he had absolutely no privacy whatsoever. He can go to the bathroom by himself. He couldn't even sleep because there was always someone tied to him. And this is in the middle of his career as he's been out serving God, trying to start churches all over the known world. And yet he says in the middle of this deep departure, he's saying, yes, and I will rejoice in verse 19 and 18. And I want us to understand this one, or try to understand a little bit of how this could be absolutely possible. How is it possible in the midst of all this hardship that's taking place in his life that he can actually say, I will rejoice? And I think that's very something that we all need because I know there's some of you have gone through really, really difficult suffering in the past couple of years or even recently. And this is something that over and over again, life comes at us and we need to be reminded of things that tell us, God, we 
we can still rest in you. And the way we see this develop is, first of all, Paul acknowledges, and this is the first thing I want us to see, Paul acknowledges the difficulties of life. Paul acknowledges life is hard. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, dot, dot, dot. Let's stop right there for a second. So what has happened to him? You know, he is here because he's starting to talk about this. He is deeply concerned for the Philippians. This church he started. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, we see this church being planted by Paul as he has these people come to faith in Philippi. Lydia, the famous uh, businesswoman who comes actually to faith in Philippi. You see the Philippian jailer who's come to faith. And this community, there has been a growing group of people who've come to know Jesus. And he is concerned for them because they're concerned for Paul. Because they're saying, Paul, we have heard that all of a sudden that you have been put into jail okay, unjustly. You did nothing wrong, but you have actually been put in jail. You are suffering. Your advance of the gospel, your career, your ministry is essentially put on hiatus and it looks like your ministry might actually be over. And the people in Philippi are starting to think, oh my gosh, what is going on here? Paul, what has happened to you? Because as they look out and see what's taking place here, it seems like the person who has led them to Jesus, the person who God has used in this instrumental way to start this movement of churches all throughout the known world, his life may be at an end. And in their mind, the church in Philippi, they're starting to think, I mean, what is God up to here? Because it almost looks like God is self-sabotaging his own mission by allowing these things to take place in Paul's life. And they are asking the questions like, God, are you with us? Are we actually following your will? You know, and I think these are questions that all of us are to a degree familiar with. You may be experiencing hard things in your own family life and you're wondering, God, are you with us? Maybe you're physically experiencing hardship and you're, you've been wondering, God, are you with us? Are we following your will? Because what it looked like right now, it doesn't look like you're actually here. And this is, this is I think, um, the quick point I want to make. Paul recognizes something. The world is difficult. Life is hard. And he's saying, let's acknowledge that to be the case. And I want to say something very humbly. So bear with me as you listen to this, especially if you're still searching for faith or you're struggling with faith, you have not crossed the line into faith. And I say this with all humility. But it may actually be very possible that Christians ought to struggle with this idea of suffering and the problem of evil, perhaps more than others. Because, and here's why I say that, because if you get rid of God from the way you think about the world and believe that He actually exists, okay, there's really not a right or wrong. The world just is and you have to accept it. It just is. But if you believe God is actually good, that God is actually doing something about the world, that He's personal, He's infinite, strong, He's mending our world, and He's saying, I am inviting you, those who believe the church into joining him in this mission, which is what all these people signed up for, you know, and all of a sudden they see all these things that aren't going according to plan in their mind, 
They're seeing Paul who has sacrificed his life for the gospel, being cut down in his prime. And they're saying, I don't know if this is right. And they're struggling. They're struggling deeply. And they're asking, God, what are you doing? Are you working against your plan? You know, when uh, I finished seminary and I was uh, interning and being a youth pastor at a church in Philadelphia, there was a man on staff who had just finished his advanced degree in theology. His wife was a doctor. The kids were all, this whole family was ready to go abroad to missions in China. This is the early 90s, so it was very difficult to get into China at that time to do some kind of mission. And they were dead set on it. They had a plan. They were ready to go. Uh, they were probably about six months to 18 six to eight months out from leaving and in the middle of preparing for all this ministry this friend of ours he had a devastating debilitating stroke and all of us were thinking oh my gosh you know there was this clear sense that this family was ready to go they were going to serve God and they're struck down in this way and we were all asking what is going on here you know, there is a sense in which as you get closer to God and you sense that perhaps God is at work in some way when you experience hard things or things that are really devastating, it should leave us struggling and up at night and wondering, God, what is going on here? And this is what I mean by Christians oftentimes feeling more acutely the problem of evil. We probably should. You know, as we think about all that's happened this past week in our country, you know, all the hardships. I mean, police officers out who are trying to protect the peace of the city being picked off one by one by a sniper. I mean, this is just horrific stuff. And yet, we recognize the racial tensions that are real and genuine for a group of disenfranchised citizens of our country and the struggles that are there. These are real things. And Christians are the ones that should be up at night Thinking, worrying, God, where are you? Why are you not here? Why are you not acting more? And we should be engaged more emotionally and thinking and praying, God, we pray that you would come. And this is the place that Paul begins. Paul recognized this is hard. Life is hard. Life is broken. And yet, he's in the midst of all of this, as someone who has tied up his career is almost over, it feels like, he has this resilient joy. And what I want us to look at for the rest of our time is to figure out, well, how does Paul deal with this situation? And it should also help us to understand how God's at work. And this is my second point. He actually sees something which is the alchemy of God. The alchemy of God. Look at verses 12 to 14 with me. He goes on to say, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know what Paul is saying? I know that as bad as the situation looks to you, there is something in which my situation is working out for God's purposes, which is good. 
This is the basic theme of the Bible, isn't it? From start to finish. That in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of things that look like it's absolutely devastating and falling apart, we see that God is actually at work. There, Matthew Henry, who was an old scholar from the late 1600s, in his commentary on this passage, he, he said, he put it this way. He said, Paul is claiming that God is the only true alchemist. And I want you to think about that with me for a second, because what did alchemists believe in the Middle Ages? What were they trying to do? They were trying to take something that was worthless, a base metal like lead, and they're trying to turn it into what? Gold. Gold. They were trying to take something that is absolutely worthless and turning it into gold. And Matthew Henry, he's saying something here in this passage. He's saying, Paul is saying, God is the only one who can actually achieve this miracle. And even in the hardship of my life, which feels like lead, which feels like nothing is going right and that God is distant, Paul is able to see something. He is able to see that God is actually doing that thing of turning the situation from that which looks worthless and terrible, and God is at work to bring about something beautiful and good. He's turning lead into gold. You know, and we remember stories like in the Old Testament of someone like Joseph, right? His brother sell him into slavery to get rid of him. He is suffering. He's accused unjustly. He's put into prison. And over time, many, many years later, you figure in the middle of that, he's probably cried out to God dozens of times. Nothing's really changed. But at the end of the story, what happens? He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And he saves his brothers and many others because of where he is. And he begins to say, you meant evil, but God did something miraculous. He turned the situation which was worthless and painful and terrible into something good. Into which that is gold. And Paul starts to ask, as he is suffering in his situation, how is God at work in my life? And now, it doesn't mean Paul thinks that success in evangelism here, because he's saying, well, here's the good thing that happened. The guards who were chained to me, they've heard the gospel. I mean, maybe this is the irony of God. Here is a hard-hearted, tough guy, Praetorian guard. He gets chained to who? Probably the most persuasive evangelist of all time. He gets to hear the gospel. He gets to hear him talk to other people about the gospel. He's dictating letters. Other people are coming to talk to him. And in the middle of all that, these people are coming to faith. Others are encouraged. And it's not enough of an explanation to say, this is why God put me here. This is why God, I'm suffering. No. He's saying, yeah, that's a part of the story. That's a small part of the story. It doesn't mean I'm not suffering. I'm only getting a glimpse of what God is doing. But that's all he is looking for in this situation. He doesn't expect this to answer every question of why am I suffering why is my ministry on hold? Why is my career near an end? But he sees just enough to say, God is at work in this situation. Because most of the time, when we experience tragedy, suffering, injustice, we have a very hard time of seeing how God is turning that circumstance into something good. Because when it's painful, when it's hopeless, boy, it's not easy. Paul knows that, but he's asking the question, God, how are you transforming this situation?
And not only that, he's talking about this not only in the big scope of ministry, but he's also talking about it personally. Because in verse 19, it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This situation, this circumstance, will turn out for my deliverance. And that word there, it could say, literally, this will turn out for my salvation. It's a different way to describe it. What Paul is, Paul is not saying here that maybe I'll just be released and everything's going to be all fine because we know in verse 21 he starts to talk about, well, it doesn't matter, matter whether I live or die. Paul is saying, here's what's taking place. There's something taking place inside me spiritually. He's not coming to this situation saying, God, how are you redeeming me physically? But he's saying as well, God is doing something in my life. And he's continuing to bring salvation into my heart. Well, maybe some of you are saying, well, isn't Paul already saved? What's he talking about? Well, in the New Testament, we know that salvation is described in different ways, right? We talk about salvation in the past tense where it is describing, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Our sins are forgiven. But we also hear the scriptures talk to us about salvation that God is actually doing right now. A Christian not only is someone who is saved from the penalty of sin, but we are now being saved from the power and the effect of sin in our lives. And the scriptures also promise this future tense of you will be saved. That the day is coming when all sin will be eradicated from your life. When Christ returns. When you are made totally new again. And these things, in the midst of all of this, Paul is basically saying, God is doing something. He's turning me into gold. He is refining my heart and my life. And God is at work through my suffering to bring about something good. And he's saying it doesn't matter whether I end up executed. It doesn't matter if I am freed and I get to do more ministry. Here's what I'm excited about. In the midst of my suffering, God is transforming me to look more and more like my Lord Jesus. Turn me into a person of love, humility. Bring me into this place where I can see more clearly the glory of Jesus and He's bringing these things about in my life through my suffering. And friends, this is, this is hard stuff. Because it's not like you start with, here's three ways, some formulaic way of, alright, if I have suffering, and I do this, and it'll all get better. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you are going to weep. You are going to struggle. But in the midst of all of that, God is doing something to not only turn the situation into gold, but to turn you into something beautiful. And he is at work to do this. And I want you to know... Look, friends, those of you who are suffering hard things, whether it be in your marriage, family life, physically, career-wise, maybe it's your kids, whatever the case may be, God is saying, I know that those things are real. In the Psalms, it talks about how God knows in our tears all that is true in our hearts. And what this passage is trying to encourage us is, God has not abandoned you. That God is for you. Even if you punt on the faith, God's faithfulness is far greater. 
and your unfaithfulness. I mean, that's good news. This is what this keeps telling us, that Jesus and God is for you. And Paul had this, ab this ability to dig deep down and say, this is what it's about. And I'm going to connect into this. And he's trying to encourage the church in Philippi to do the same. So not only does he acknowledge that life is hard, he also finds hope in the fact that God is the alchemist. God brings about good things out of something dark. He is doing something, and he is not alone. And the way he says this happens is change the thing that you base your life on. He says you've got to define your life in this. Not based on anything else, but on Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because I can imagine, as a very successful apostle and evangelist, here's the one thing that he could take great credit for. You know, people have come to him. People have come to Jesus through him. People, God has used him to start this incredible movement called Christianity. He's kind of really the architect of it. And it starts to grow and expand, and all of a sudden now he's in jail. He can't do any of his ministry in the way he thought. His life is at stake here. All of those things can really discourage someone. And yet he says this. Listen to what he says in the scriptures here from verse 19 and following. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And listen to verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me... He says, for me, this is what my life is about. It's about this one thing. It's about Jesus. This is what allows me to deal with all the hard things that come along in my life. All the false accusations I've had to deal with. All of the understanding that my ministry may be over. And he's still able to rejoice in this because he's saying, Jesus is my life. I mean, he's saying, if you have this, they can take away everything else, and I still have joy. Because it's either you have your life in Jesus, or you have your life in something else. As I've talked to some of you since uh, we've been here, um, people have continued to ask me, what is life or ministry like in Palo Alto and Silicon Valley? And, you know, it, it is a different place. It's not as hot as Southern California. You know, it is Northern California. It's this kind of different, quirky place. And yet, in many ways, it's the same like every other place around the world. People are looking to find their life. They look to find the good life. And the good life there is defined in this way. Uh, I want to create something. I want to innovate. I want to do something that is disruptive, that is cutting edge. And I want to build a life that says, I am important. I have influence. And if that happens, that gives me the freedom to do all this other stuff because my life is built on this thing, that I have accomplished something. And you know, the reality is, most of the people who show up in Silicon Valley don't really do that. You're part of maybe a team that helps you that. You're part of things that actually crumble and fail. And uh, what I've learned in the past two years is this. People have the exact same problem 
up in Northern California, Southern California, San Francisco, New York, Philadelphia, when I lived in the UK, it's the same thing. We all try to build our lives on something that our current situation and our culture tells us, you've got to have this, and if you have it, your life will be good. And the scriptures come and tell us, it doesn't matter what century you live in. It doesn't matter what culture you're a part of. What you have to do is this one thing. To have joy that will not be taken away from you, it has to be something that gives, it, gives you that thing outside of your own self. And Paul is saying, this is what it is. It's Jesus. You know, it's Jesus. Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if my career is over. It's not my life. He says, I may live or die. It doesn't matter because here's the one thing that can't be taken away from me. It's Jesus. You know, for some of you, like if your career or your business is collapsing, if that is your business, your whole life is going to crumble. If all of your life is built on how well your children do, if they go left or right, you're going to crumble. If it's all about whatever else that you think you need to have, and that is taken away from you, you will not only lose happiness, but joy. And Paul is saying, this is what allows me to be sustained. For me to live is Jesus. But for all of us, we're probably filling in that blank of, for me to live is my career. For me to live is the ability to have a certain kind of lifestyle. For me to live is to do well in school, get into a good college or whatever else society tells me must be done or I can't have any kind of joy or happiness. My ability to be married to the person that I always dreamt about and that marriage is going to be great. You know, you lose any of those things and it feels like your life is over. It's because, as Paul is trying to tell us, we have to ground our life in Jesus. And as he has that for himself, as we define our lives in this one thing, in Jesus himself, he's saying, this is what makes it all possible. In the depth of my pain and suffering, in the depths of being falsely accused and being chained up and thinking that my career may be over, I still have abundant joy because Jesus is my life. That's the one thing I can offer you. I mean, pastors can't offer people anything else. We can't fix problems. But one thing we can point people to is, here's your hope. Not in me, not in yourself. It's in the God who has made these promises. And I know some of you are saying, Iron, I know this. I've grown up in the church. I've heard this a thousand times. But I don't feel it. You know? Knowing that that's true, that knowing that I have to do the hard work of saying I have to shift my allegiance to Jesus. Okay, I get it. But it just doesn't feel like it's enough. And how do we do that then? How do we change that part of our hearts? And here's the thing you have to remember. We have to go back to the scriptures and remember this one truth. Remember that the Savior has come to you and said, You are my life. You are my life. Jesus has come to us and said, I have given my life for you. Jesus is the one who says in John 10, 15, I lay down my life for my sheep. This is the person who prays in John chapter 17, verse 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart so that they may experience joy and the fullness of life that I had with you. 
Jesus is saying, I lived wholly for you in such a way that I was willing to give up every comfort I ever had. That the glory of being with the Father, the comforts of being the Son of God in all of the splendor and majesty, I laid aside in order that I would take on human form. That I would suffer, be falsely accused, humiliated, to be executed. Why? He said, I consecrated myself. I set myself apart. I trained. I did everything in order to have this. And how did he do that? He said, I did this because I had such a longing for you to experience what I had with the Father. That I set all of those things aside in order that you would experience life. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. Jesus is coming to us and he's saying, for me, to live is you. Put your name in there. Remind yourself of this thing this morning. For me, Jesus is saying, my life is you. My life is you. I have given myself for you, for my church. I've done all of this so you would experience life. And as you understand this, we can begin to say, Jesus, if you live for me in this way, then we know my life is all about you. And to die to my life is actually gain. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives us this morning. Jesus, who is our friend, our shepherd, our lover of my soul, he's saying to you, for me, to live is you. And may that be the thing that encourages you this morning. May that be the thing that brings loudly to you that God is the God who comes to you and says, I have not abandoned you. I have not forgotten about you. And I am here for you to come to me and experience life. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come this morning thanking you for being a God who promises these things to us. It's not about how faithful we've been to you because all of us stand here or sit here knowing that we don't have what it takes to come before you with confidence. But in our doubt, our brokenness, our frustration with you, you continue to tell us that one thing, that you are a God of love and you've come to your people and said, remember, you were my life. I gave myself for you. Let that encourage you and give you joy as you go through the hard things of life that I have not abandoned you. Even if it's you who has said, I'm not even sure if you are there. And may we hear that and be encouraged and nourished this morning, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Whether that may be physical, whether that may be financial, or that may be in the midst of relationships that have gone sour. We pray, O oh Lord, that we know that you are still for us. And help us to see that and to follow you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.